Let's face it, running a construction company can be chaotic. As business owners, we wear a lot of hats and we're constantly putting out fires. Luckily, there's a way to work simpler with Builder Trend. I'm a huge advocate for using technology to help run AFT, and Builder Trend is one of the most crucial tools I rely on to keep me on top of every detail. Built just for home builders and remodelers, this is an easy to use platform that helps manage all aspects of my business. My team's been using Builder Trend's project management platform for the last five years. And we love that they're always improving and adding new features to make our lives easier. This is something that we've really tried to take on internally to find ways to improve our system every day. Build a Trend just released a full set of financial services, added new tools like Takeoff to make estimates more accurate, and launched a total rebrand with a new mission to help change the future of construction. And we are on board. To learn more about how Build a Trend can help calm the chaos in your construction business, Visit buildatrend.com backslash AFT. When you schedule a demo, you'll receive an exclusive 60-day money-back guarantee only available to my podcast listeners. I'm following Build a Trend into the future in construction. Come on board with us. We are just a few months away from the Contractors Coalition Summit here in Scottsdale, Arizona. It'll begin on Sunday, May 7th and complete on Wednesday, May 10th. We had two events that were completely sold out last year. The first one in Nashville, second one in Huntington Beach with Nick Schiffer from NS Builders and Morgan Molitor from Construction of Style. Again, make sure that you get out to Scottsdale. It's going to be an amazing event. We only have a few seats left, and we're going to be speaking about all things pricing, project management, how to make money inside and outside of your business, You know, contracts, client expectations, building that organization, and again, just the marketing aspect, social media. One of the most amazing values of this conference is not only the content that's produced and a lot of the information that's handed out to those that attend, but also the networking, being there with 30 like-minded builders around the country, being able to have a, someone to contact and reach out to on any questions you have moving forward. It is an amazing event. Hurry and sign up. Again, www.contractorscoalitionsummit.com. We'll see you in May. We really didn't have company values until very recently. And so it was something to where I think we had great culture. I think everybody was nice and kind and you know did a good job, but... You can get our management team all in one room and ask, hey, what do we stand for? And everybody would kind of give you a different answer. And so we, we came up with diligence, integrity, and the golden rule, which is something I very much believe in, in all three of those aspects. Um, we are, you know, candidly a, a strong Christian company. Um, a lot of our guys are, are very developed in that area. And, um, and I do think it does give us an edge and being able to band together around something that makes sense. Uh, and it also spells dig. So, you know, can't, can't argue with that. <laughs> so welcome to the AT Construction Podcast. Very excited today. We have Reese Alley on with us. Welcome, Reese. How's it going, guys? Good. So Reese, he is owner, founder of SA Construction. And I was really looking forward to today's episode. You know, it's it's great to hear the perspective from someone that's in the trade zone. I think what's unique about you, Reese, very ambitious guy, super young guy. So here we are, you know, we talk about, you know, labor and in the trades and you know, we have someone that's already started their own company at a super young age. So maybe for you starting your own company, especially at a long age, Reese, at a young age, I should say, biggest challenge right now is a subcontractor. Yeah, I think we we haven't done an enormous amount of work as a company, as a sub. Every once in a while, we were we will work through an engineer or through another company. It's quite rare. But I will say, as someone that uses quite a lot of subs, is making the person that hired you's reputation look the best to their customer. I think there's a lot of people that are trying to, you know, shock and jive a little bit in that relationship. And at the end of the day, if you do burn that bridge and they look bad at their customer, 
you're never going to get another dime out of the company. And so I do think it's a, quite an important role to play. And it, it's challenging to balance not destroying your profit margin, but also covering other people's mistakes uh, to save their reputation. So where do you get that perspective? I mean, I, you know, what's really tough as a trade partner subcontractor is you, you are essentially, you're, there's a lot of risk, right? Because you're trying to bid labor, you're trying to forecast job lengths, you know, you have material, you're dealing with all these different spikes. In some ways you have some protections, you know, some GCs, depending on how they format their contract, whether they be cost plus or lump sum can protect themselves. It's, it can be tough as a trade partner. So where does that mindset come from to understand, hey, if I can bring value to the GC in turn, you know, that'll help me in the long run. I think it just comes from a network of referrals and seeing the fruit of that tree. I think there's a lot of times where in the past I'd relied on just pay-per-click advertising and you're getting a lot of tire kickers. And when you get a hold of one relationship where they give you 10 leads, 15 leads, 20 leads, and that are all coming in on a silver platter uh, a year and they're all high ticket projects, you really, really start to take care of that relationship a lot more. And once you realize that almost every customer can be that relationship, if stewarded properly, you, you start to have a different lens of value in that. And so we're all referral. We don't do any kind of advertising right now. I mean, we have social medias that have just got recently started, but nothing that is paid ads. And I think we, we talk about our advertising budget as just going back to fix some of the projects that don't go well, or even if we weren't necessarily wrong and what we installed was correct and it just didn't work out because of the option they chose just going back and fixing it uh, can be considered an advertising budget by not burning the bridge of those referrals over a long period of time and focusing on keeping that relationship. Do you feel like it gives you an advantage? And, and, and let me ask what I mean by that, because, uh, so my brother, he's, he went the subcontractor, right? Trade partner, you know, he's done structural steel and for him, very similar to you, right? He has to perform. He has to be competitive, right? There's all these stipulations he has to meet. However, from a business development side, you know, there may be 10, 15 general contractors that are on repeat, right? That he's working with. Do you feel that's giving you advantages? You, you can understand your business, build a company that, you know, your cost to find new work, a new job, as opposed to me, that's always looking for a new customer. Your clientele is different that it's going to save you that step, even though it comes with the other challenges as a subcontractor. I think so. And just so I heard your question correct, you're just asking how to manifest those kinds of relationships. Yeah, it says business development. Business development okay. for you is a lot different for me. You know, finding a GC, as you mentioned, yeah. that's going to feed you, you know, good projects. And I think going back to our earlier question, if if you cater that relationship and you really take it, you know, as valuably as you can, um, as you get that network of referrals and then a like one GC referring you to another GC is much more valuable than someone who's going to do a project once referring you to another person that's going to do a project once. And so I don't believe in treating everybody differently. I think you should treat everybody the same. You know, one of our core values is the golden rule. And so I really believe in that. However, those kinds of relationships like a GC or in our case, like an engineer or a property manager that's going to be giving, you know, time and time and time again. Going the extra mile can be the cheapest way to have an enormous amount of work over the long run. And I think as you build a reputation throughout their network of people, if you're just stacking and stacking and stacking credibility from one person to another, like there's a lot of jobs that we get on to where there are, you know, these six figure projects that come out of nowhere. And, you know, sometimes we do emergency work, like one of the ones we're on right now. 
And we were getting pointed at by to the customer by four or five different people, being property managers, engineers, county inspectors, all those kinds of guys. And so everybody just points the finger right back to us because we've done good in a lot of those other areas. And, um, and as we like to say, all roads lead to paradise. And so being nice to everybody is, um, it can compound really quick and, um, it can give you a lot of leverage on the site. So that's one of the pros, right? You mentioned that the general contracting and another example, similar to you, Reese, you know, my, my fabrication guy who does all my countertops, he was introduced to me by another general contractor that stood behind him. And it's like, Brad, this guy's amazing young guy, you know, starting his company. Now he's essentially doing all my work. So here he is, you know, he gets introductions you're mentioning. And it's not just one retail customer. I mean, this is a GC doing big projects and now he's doing, you know, multiple custom homes, you know, a quarter, a year. But the reality is for you, Reese, is that that's one pro, right? But one of the cons, and I shouldn't say it's a con, but something that affects you more than me is labor, right? Having good labor employees, tracking them, their health. How does that work? You know, just hiring, finding good talent, training them, especially in operations. So this has been something that we have actually been purging a little bit in the last handful of weeks and a couple of months. Um, you know, one, one person can be a make or break for the entire company, especially if they're bringing in more expertise than you have. Um, and likewise, if they have less and you are afraid to let them go or you are afraid to go back into their shoes, if you were to replace them and have to go through the training process, maintaining the good culture is paramount. It is the most important thing. And maintaining also a, um, a good basket of skill set is also a growing of thing of importance as you get larger. Because I will say you can hold everything together with bail and wire up until about you know, one, one and a half million, you can kind of wear every single hat if your hair's on fire, you're working 90 hours a week. But past that point, you really have to rely on the leverage that's brought by other skill sets in the company. And if you don't breed those people uh, into success, or at least be able to spot where their weaknesses and where their strengths are, and you don't put them in the correct spot, that will be the law of the lid, as John Maxwell always said, and, um, and you're not going to go past that. And if you do, you're you're going to be broken in a lot of other places <laughs> and be sore on a regular basis. So. Yeah, I think we can relate. And maybe let's get some context. I think for those listening, sure. you know, before I dive into company culture and a couple of things you just queued here and teed up, but explain your scope of work, your specialty. You mentioned, you know, some of its emergency work, but walk, walk through like normal projects that you're bidding, attacking, you know, managing. So just in terms of the kind of work we do. Yeah. Kind of work you do scope, like your company yeah. in general, if you were selling me as a, you know, sure. So I would say our bread and butter now has been emergency projects where they are like for the one, there's one right down the road from uh, my place. And it was a neighborhood where it's corrugated metal pipe. It's, you know, been down there for 40 years and a lot of it on a 25 year lifespan. It started to look like cottage cheese and it forms a sinkhole around the pipe. And then it eventually works its way up, you know, 18 feet up to the road and then starts collapsing. And so that was a situation where they had this little hole open up in the asphalt and it's like tip of the iceberg type thing. And so the whole road started collapsing in, in noticeably in a matter of a day or two. So fire marshal came, shut it down. Half the neighborhood can't get out of the neighborhood for the last four weeks. And so we came in and um, there was a handful of others that all of a sudden became infrastructure contractors that wanted to hop on it. And we were just, like I said, pointed to by a lot of different people and it offered us a lot of leverage to do the job right. I do believe with those kinds of things, you got to charge a lot for them to really deliver and have enough resources. But 
those are great projects for us. I would say a lot of the stuff that we got started on um, was just residential drainage work. And so that was the kind of thing to where it was just behind someone's house or we do a lot of uh, community work. And so like condominiums, apartment buildings, that kind of thing. And so doing those kinds of like six inch, eight inch, 12 inch uh, PVC systems, and then just with fabricated drop inlets, that kind of thing, a lot of swales, a lot of rock. And so that stuff's non-emergency, but they're really great jobs. They're very profitable and our guys can do them, you know, with their, with their hands tied behind their back. And on the bigger side, now we're getting into more dam construction. And so that's stuff like, you know, for example, there was a law that came into pass a few years ago that reclassified the size of what dams need to be regulated in our state. And I don't know how it is in a lot of other states, but there was a whole new sweeping regulation to where the ones that were getting inspected all of a sudden weren't able to be compliant. And so we have to just rip the whole thing apart, re, you know, install a new outlet control structure, a new outlet pipe, and the new this, new that, tow drains and all that kind of thing. And all of those projects are more or less the same, just with, at least from an earthen dam standpoint, uh, we don't do structural, like, you know, stand up tall concrete dams, but they've been really, really good. And um, those are definitely the, some of the bulk of the big projects as well. It's been really good. So, yeah. So from site drainage to, you know, SWIPs, you know, stormwater prevention, you're doing swells, um, erosion. When you mentioned the emergency project, like you're coming in and there's a big sinkhole, you know, essentially what part of the scope are, are you running the entire thing from the asphalt to over excavation, recompaction, I mean, everything to do these repairs. And you mentioned the corrugated pipe that was old and mm -hmm. de deteriorated. So are you working as a mini GC on a project such as emergency or are you doing a subcontractor work? So it's a mix. So all of our guys are typically the operators and that we've had really good luck with that. It's just what they do on a normal basis. But because we're getting tied up in a lot of, um, you know, sometimes we have to move a light pole or relocate utilities or again, doing pavement um, on one of the projects that we are finishing up, which was a culvert restoration project. It was like 250 grand, which is a little bit on the light side, you know, now starting to finish the project. But we had also been asked by the developer of the neighborhood who owned the back section that we were coming in through. And he was like, hey, you guys are already on site and we really need this road paved. It's like a quarter mile long. And um, there, that, don't quote me on that, but it was 120 grand. And, and so we found a, a sub that will do it. Um, there are normal paving guys. And so we will use subcontractors there. Sometimes we'll sub out a uh, yeah, concrete work, concrete structures. And so on a lot of our jobs, we have like concrete cradles or thrust blocks that hold the, uh, the pipe in place. Um, and as well, like we've got, our largest residential project right now is 525,000 and that's for a retaining wall in someone's backyard, which is kind of insane, but it's just a, it's like an 18 by it's an 18 foot tall. And then it tapers down to like six foot or something. And that was 525. And so this, this sub on that job alone is $250,000. And so that's just like a really extreme example, but we definitely do use subcontractors. It's a mix of our own guys. If it's just straight up drainage, which is the majority of our work, then that's all in house. But, um, but we do exercise a lot of those relationships as well. So this is where company culture is really important because, as you mentioned, not only is it in house internally and everything you're self performing, but externally, right? Because essentially, some of your team you're going to become managers. It's not just operating internally, but you're managing other subs. Their schedule, you know, you're kind of coordinating. Um, where does that come from? Just setting, you mentioned that golden rule, core values, you know, how have you implemented core values? What are some of the things that you feel you've done to give you strong company culture? Sure. So we, 
and this is something to where we really didn't have company values until very recently. And so it was something to where I think we had great culture. I think everybody was nice and kind and you know did a good job. But um, we recently paid $50,000 for a consultant to come in and fly out from Texas and do the whole nine yards and come up with the management team. And that was one of the things that they mentioned that was huge is not having core values because you could get our management team all in one room and ask, hey, what do we stand for? And everybody would kind of give you a different answer. And so <laughs> we, we came up with diligence, integrity, and the golden rule, which is something I very much believe in, in all three of those aspects. Um, we are, you know, candidly a, a strong Christian company. Um, a lot of our guys are, are very developed in that area. And, um, and I do think it does give us an edge and being able to band together around something that makes sense. Uh, and it also spells dig. So, you know, can't, can't argue with that. <laughs> I love that. So what's interesting, what's interesting about the core value, um, and I'll be open here too on this, on this platform is that for as long as we had been in business, same thing, you know, I felt that we had, um, you know, just what I interpreted core values, right. How I expected our team to communicate and, um, you know, what we believe in and, you know, being a steward of our client's investment and all these different things, but none of that had ever been implemented. And yeah, you try to hire, but essentially, when, when people understand clearly what they're expected to do and the, the advice you gave is super sound because it wasn't until not too long ago that we implemented our core values. We have 11 of them at AFT. And in fact, today we just had a production meeting and we went through all those with the team members, right? And what we've done is we've, because we have 11, we assign every production meeting. One of the employees is assigned that, that company value, core value, and they have to teach the rest of the group on it, on what it means to them and how, you know, they've been implemented. But what I've seen to your point, Reese, is by having that, you know, it, it completely changes the dynamic to make sure that not everyone's scattered, scatterbrained out there. They all understand exactly what I expect of them, how I expect them to handle situations and how I essentially be a representative of AFT. Same for you at, you know, at your company at SEA. Absolutely. It makes a big difference. And especially when customers are asking and our people are asking and new people come on the team, it creates a really predictable way to onboard people, train people and, and make everybody on the same page. So you're a young guy, inspiration, mm -hmm. you know, where's the, where's the drive to start a company so young? Cause it's not easy starting a company and to have mm -hmm. that gumption is pretty impressive. So it, I lived in a, in a fairly nice neighborhood. Uh, we were a, a hair bit leveraged out as a family, I think for where we lived. And so a lot of my friends were getting, they just kind of had a credit card and, did whatever they needed. <laughs> and so, um, which I, I had a fantastic childhood, uh, like no complaints, but I just, it wasn't a thing where I ordered it from my parents and it came in the door. And so I just wanted to, I, my, my parents, my mom is one of the hardest working people I've ever known. I mean, probably the hardest working, most wonderful person on the planet, yada, yada. Uh, and she would let me do anything I wanted, buy anything I wanted, try anything I wanted, um, if I could pay for it. And so, which you know, that never led to like drugs and alcohol and stuff like that. But as far as anything I wanted to do, whether it was a bike or whether it was a four wheeler or whether it was a truck or, you know, my first vehicle, uh, you could, the sky's the limit if you can figure it out and she'll encourage support, do whatever. But that was kind of the deal. And so that's where it came from. And so when I was 14, I wanted to start saving up to buy a, um, I was supposed to get the family forerunner and then uh, 2009 happened and that just wasn't, wasn't, wasn't going to happen anymore. And so, uh, they were, um, they just said, okay, well, you know, do every need. And so 
tried to get a job at Chick-fil-A in Publix and they denied me because I was 14 and didn't have a car and both my parents worked. And so uh, then I just started banging up the door around the neighborhood and just asking for work and if anybody needed anything and just started busting it for 10, 12, 14 bucks an hour, just doing hard labor. And then that led to getting a mower and when I was 15 and then having five or six people that I cut every week and, you know, just pushing around the neighborhood and then, uh, got turned 16 and learned the leverage of having staff. And that's kind of where it kept snowballing, snowballing from there. So what's interesting is just like anybody, I mean, it's pretty consistent theme, any entrepreneur bring on that, you know, you look at someone such yourself where he says, Oh, you know, I just graduated high school and decided to start a company. It doesn't work that way. I mean, there's a journey here. There's, there's a timeline, right. Of preparation, understanding business. And as you mentioned, starting from the bottom, working way up landscape. I understand that. I mean, it's pretty, um, straightforward as you're building clientele and, you know, developing your understanding of landscape into the field you're in now, right? As you get into, as you mentioned, site drainage and retention walls and, you know, you're working, taking care of emergency projects. When did you know that you want to be in the trades and especially with this niche, this focus? So, and and I want to get this story straight. So SCA was not a I, from birth, had a logo on my shirt that said SCA Construction. And so there was a lot of stuff in between that. And so that got sold and then merged and then combined and then partnered and then this and the other. So I don't want to paint the picture that I had just, a, you know, SCA on my forehead from when I was 14 years old and that's all it ever was. And so uh, as I kind of scaled and I always wanted to just make money. And to be honest, I never wanted to be in landscape or construction. I had it written down in a journal when I was 15, that I'd be in construction for five years and then go to real estate. And frankly, I still wanted to do that up until not that long ago, but is I just didn't think it was scalable or controllable. You know, you see everybody on the internet and especially since you've got a a web presence, there's a course and a guru on every block and corner promoting e-commerce and real estate and, you know, make $200,000 an hour in Bitcoin. And it's just, there's nobody in construction that's promoting anything on a, on a big basis. There, I think there's a lot of small guys, um, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with making a living and doing really well for yourself. But um, nobody talks about the fact you can be a multimillion-dollar construction company with one project. I mean, it doesn't typically work that way from a scale standpoint. But in terms of scaling, I mean, I have a friend who owns the second largest excavation company in at least the Southeast, if not the country. I mean, they're up there with Plateau and all that kind of thing. And, you know, we're, we'll do right at probably 5 million this year, I would say. And I mean, my, the, our whole top line of the entire year could fit into one draw on one of his projects, like the mobilization check on one project is my whole year of top line. So there's huge scale to this whole thing. And I think I didn't realize that for a long time. And, you know, the desire to keep any bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, just kept, it, it was an unquenchable thirst, I guess. And so going from cutting grass at $35 a pop and then starting to do like bobcat work, that was like 3000 bucks and then doing a retaining wall, it's 10 and then a drainage job, it's 50. And then now we're doing dams that are 700 and 800 and 200 and 400. Um, and then we haven't gotten a job yet that is over a million, but we have, I did submit $5 million of bids between two projects last week on Friday. I'm super excited about it. And so, but I know their bid right and we know the engineers really well. And so that stuff is to come, but there's huge scale. And I, I think um, realizing that and, and understanding that for me, 
was what kept me hooked and um, and why we're trying to build a little bit bigger of a portfolio. So, so let me ask you this, and if if you don't mind me taking this direction too, do you have um, and 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 I don't know if if you did college, like what would you speak to someone who? is maybe debating between, you know, a career in the trades as opposed to, you know, the formal four-year degree and, you know, taking that route? So a great question. And I have a lot of friends now that are graduating from Auburn that paid $180,000 for an education and that they are getting $75,000 a year out of college or uh, one got a $96,000 option uh, working graveyard shift, but it was still a good offer. Um, but I think that if your parents are paying for it or you're going to graduate debt free, I don't think it's a bad option to be honest. I really don't. Unless it's some stupid like art or something like that. And there's nothing in art, but it's not a profession job for most people. And so if you're planning on that, like their parents paid for it and that did tell you where I grew up, like their parents paid for it. And that was that they don't have any debt. And that's, that's great. That's fantastic. They had a great time for four years and now they have a hundred thousand dollar job. Awesome. But for the majority of us that, can't do that. I also do know one of our staff, um, our office manager actually paid her whole way through college, uh, working with us and a couple other things. So she did really well and she's going to be a licensed CPA soon. She's going to make a hundred thousand dollars a year or more for the rest of her career. And she's fantastic. And so I think if you're, you work really hard and you're going to graduate debt free and you know what you want to do and you really do require a degree for that. I think that it, it is warranted. I don't think it's a bad idea because most people don't know what they want to do or aren't willing to take enough trauma uh, in the blunt force realm to figure out what that is. But for those that do have a really big dream, um, maybe to do things that seem larger than life and and go places that they haven't been and uh, just try things, understand that you know you probably won't make like any substantial money for at least four or five or six years if you have a growth mindset, but. I wouldn't trade the education for the world. And so it, it's an education that will pay for very well for a very long time. And so, and again, you can also be on the fence to where if you have a, and there's nothing wrong with it, but you can have 25 maintenance accounts and make a few thousand dollars a month for 30 years. And you're still an entrepreneur the same way I am. Um, I don't have that goal, but some people do. And so in the same way is if you go to college, you know, you'll, you might make $30,000 a year your whole life with a psychology degree. And likewise, you might make $400,000 a year with a psychology degree. It just depends on you. It depends on how well your people skills develop. It depends on how well you network. Um, and so this, the same, the same duck can be a very different thing in a different pond. And so I, um, I, I don't know if that answers, but I think there's a, there's a huge variability to it. And a lot of it depends on personality. Oh, I think you completely answered it because the reality is, you know, it's, it, it's, it's very understandable. Like I ended up doing college, right. But I, at, at yeah. the time in fairness that I did college, um, for construction management, I, I, I'll just be open. I didn't understand there are other avenues, right. To maybe ex- expedite that track, if you will. And, you know, for somebody that, um, and I at least knew what I wanted to do so I could go on, I could take heavy credits and I graduate early and, and move quickly. But for those that maybe, uh, as to your point, don't know career, trajectory, what they want to do, you know, there, there's a lot of debt, right? There's a lot of costs going to college. It's not cheap. And, and especially if you're paying it for yourself, but to your point, what's interesting about going into the trades is this, it's very scalable. And you gave these examples of how, you know, these projects company can grow. And as you start learning your strength and, and the direction you want to go, 
But more importantly, what's interesting that I think is a really savvy comment that you made, Reese, is you said, immediately, there may not be this high dollar reward. Your projects will continue to grow. You'll continue to train, you know, as you have as a company. But if you care about your company and investing in your company and you have a growth mindset, you're going to make sure you're structuring that growth, you know, and using those profits to grow the company and grow the brand, knowing that that payoff will be down the road that eventually, yeah, six, seven, eight years. And there's a lot of builders and trade partners I speak with that they're like, hey, I didn't make a ton of money in my first few years, but they're building a brand. They're building credibility. You know, they're building a portfolio. And in the years that come, that's when you start to understand a business that, hey, you can operate where, yeah, you can get to the point where you're making a good living. And at some point, depending on your exit strategy, there could be a sell, maybe the company in the future. And that's when you get that 3x, 4x, 5x, maybe 10x, right? Yes. And and it can escalate greatly at that time. Yes, 100%. This episode is brought to you by Pella Windows. When it comes to building homes at AFT, almost every project has Pella Windows. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relationships with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers, because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. Their they're company culture, their integrity, their honesty, you know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra-contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So for anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. And so, you know, again, for you, it's not always as easy as it seems, right? I mean, even though we're painting this picture that you could go into the trades and ideally more young people listen to this podcast and understand that there's a ton of opportunity. You build a framing company, a trim carpentry, as you mentioned I mean, you can go into excavation, you can go site work, you can go into concrete. I mean, there's so many opportunities that can be really high value, um, but it's not easy, right? There's a lot of risk. There's a lot of time. There's a lot of hours. For you, darkest moment in your journey so far? So that's an easy one. That was a handful of years ago, and it was a situation where I was mostly in residential, and it was, I had a shop in Marietta, Georgia. And at that point, so if you were to take in the last the years prior to that, I had tripled in size about every single year. And uh, I had taken a lot of advice. I, I kind of got free counsel for a long time. I, I played the young, humble guy, which was true uh, for a long time, as long as I could. And, you know, still kind of milked that today a little bit. And so I had a lot of great advice from a lot of great people. I had a lot of contacts. I had a lot of that, you know, that stuff to, kind of be a turtle on a fence post and bump into it. And somebody helps you on top kind of thing. And, and so uh, not to take credit for anything, but I had been doing 40, 40 or 50,000 hours a month for the previous six months and making like 20,000 hours a month in take home profits. I was working my nuts off, you know, 90, hundred hours a week, sleeping at the shop sometimes. And, but it was working. 
and I had one setup. I was running uh, one or two subcontractors at a time and everything was great. And so me and a buddy who I shared office space with, um, we were like, you know what? This is great. We'll buy double the amount of equipment, double the amount of ad spend, double everything, hire everybody else, and, and we'll double in size and make double the amount of money. And that's just how we thought it worked. And so I went out and financed another $150,000 of equipment. And then I started spending another $5,000 a month on ads. And I hired a bunch of new people that were totally green, like off the lot. I mean, just didn't know anything about construction. And so at that point, I started doing about 70, 80, and then started creeping like $100,000 a month. And I just lost it. And so it was working. We were selling a lot of jobs and the salesman ended up, um, he had a business, went on for about six months and about, about probably three of the six months. But for the first time, I didn't have to do estimating and still run the whole company. I was doing all operations at that point, all sales and all everything and didn't have a bookkeeper either, which is just senile to think about now. And so there was $80,000 a month just going through my hands and I didn't pay attention to it. And so, and I knew there was problems with the salesman and I knew there was issues and I ignored them because I didn't want to go back to that role. And I didn't want to pick up, um, I didn't want to pick up those pieces again because I was so happy with, you know, theoretically being able to step away. And so it got away. We started getting terrible reviews, terrible feedback. We were losing money on all the jobs we had. I only had like 30, that 30, 40,000 hours in cash. If you were to minus everything out when I started that process. And so, and I had like 13,000 hours a month of vehicle payments and, and uh, machine payments, truck payments, and more overhead after that. And it was just a nightmare. And so burned through all that. We started going into debt. And so got about $70,000 in a credit card debt by December. And finally just, realized like, I can't do this anymore. Like I got to scale back finally. And, and it was an ego punch. I mean, I, I would like to say I'm a humble person. I definitely am now. And, um, and I just had to say, you know what, screw it. I'll, I'll scale back for the first time in my life so far. And I realized that I remember, uh, I let my salesman go and he ended up spending $200 at Bistro that night on my credit card. And, uh, in the morning when I picked up his sales phone, never looked at an estimate of the guy sent out, never looked at his phone. I gave him my personal phone number as a sales phone and got a new number, which is so stupid, but I did it. And um, I remember that morning, uh, it was a super cold day, you know, close to Christmas. And I started going through all the text messages of all of our customers for the last six months. And I had to fire my best friend two months earlier because it had worked for me three years up until that point because of lies that this guy had been telling. And I remember reading through those texts and just crying, to be honest with you. And of all of the horrible things that had been happening and fires I had to put out and customers that were angry and people that weren't getting paid and people that were getting screwed over, um, were all him. Like he was behind pretty much all of it. And I was too naive to check on that. And so, uh, it's basically lost all the money I had and then went really far into debt, like 18% interest vendor credit card debt, like really bad. And I real I thought I had six weeks of work sold out going into December. And I had about four days of work sold out going into December um, because he had been funneling those jobs. So he'd go and say he was the owner of the company and then he would take a deposit. He would ghost the customer in my name and then or he would do the job with a subcontractor, do it wrong and then leave. Like he left a 30 yard dumpster on someone's house and they had the dumpster company had to put a lien on their house. And I didn't figure it out until I called the customer back wanting to get them on the schedule. 
because I didn't realize they had already been, that had already happened. And so there was like 17 of those projects that had happened that every time I called to get somebody on the schedule saying, oh, we, they already, you guys already did the job two months ago. Oh, you guys already did the job five months ago. Oh, hey, you FF this, that, and the other, you are, you stole my money. I called the police on you and I never heard back and this, that, and the other. And it was just the reputation I worked so hard for and the money I'd worked so hard for and the things I'd worked so hard for um, just decimated um, for quite a while. And that took a long time to get out of. And I, I fixed all of them and I made it right. Um, but that was a tough freaking pill to swallow, man. Well, I think anybody listening, I mean, to some extent, we've all had these experiences, whether it be bad hires, um, y- you know, lack of maybe organization, format, you know, training, um, accountability, as well as just building a company, right? These are mistakes. And what's interesting, there's a quote here from Adam Osborne. It's one of my favorites. It says, the most valuable thing you can make is a mistake. You can't learn anything from being perfect, right? And so as you think about that, Reese, for you, how does that history of your business career and, you know, how has that impacted you now? You know, as you start, you know, we were talking about company culture, but now this new growth as you're getting these jobs yeah. and you're looking for your first, you know, seven figure million dollar job, how has that changed your operation now? Well, you have a much lower tolerance for talent, you know, is not in the right spot. And so I think that's one of the really foundational things that I got out of that time um, is it's extremely expensive. It, it's more expensive to keep someone in the wrong spot than it is to just take take the hit and let things go for a while or step into their shoes and until you find a replacement. And I think in your conscious, you know if someone's in the right position or if they're in the wrong position. I believe that 100%. Typically, your conscience is right. It's whether you have the guts to listen to it or not. And that can be a really tough call. Like I had to let go of my estimator from last year and a half and I'm the groomsman at his wedding uh, in May. And so stuff like that to where it's like this really tough line to walk because you become friends with a lot of your guys and you want to play the good old boys club and it's detrimental to the people on your team. It's detrimental to you, your future, your finances. And so now coming in, um, we just hired a gentleman that used to work for Qit. And so, I mean, he was on projects in excess of 900 million that he bid and produced and that kind of thing. And so getting those people that are much farther along than you are, at least in certain areas, like he might not be able to build a book of business or market or do anything like that or do ops, but, um, or he definitely can, but his specialty is in estimating because it's what he did for a long time. And that's what he's been, uh, you know, born to do, I guess. And, and he's, he's getting paid for it. That's for sure. But not giving that kind of compensation and finding those kinds of people isn't an option at this size. And again, we're like tiny, we're like a speck in the bucket in my mind. I mean, we'll do, like I said, four, four or 5 million, probably 5 million this year. And, um, and it's a drop compared to what's out there. And so the caliber of people you need to get past that point and really get into the, the, the really, really big stuff, which is all relative is, something that has become painfully aware as a people problem rather than in anything else except a people problem. And so, yeah. You're, you're, you're speaking like a true business owner. The reason I say that Reese is because you mentioned, you know, talent in the right spot. You said that first off when he kicked off here. So essentially having the right people on the bus, having the right people on the right seat, that's the core, right? If you want to be super successful, which you're on that track right now, you got to have the right people in the right seat. 
what's really important too is you mentioned you got to attract talent, right? And you just mentioned you hire someone from Kiwit that does, you know, they do some big projects, the caliber of people. And it's funny because I just had this podcast not too long ago release and Brandon Booth, he was really big that, you know, success is when preparation meets opportunity. So essentially, and, and we're going to tie this all together because you said, Brad, with that growth mindset, right? This didn't take years. So you may be sacrificing some of your profit today to bring on a more expensive, better caliber, better talent person into the firm. But that can, again, going back to the multiplier, this can be a multiplier for the company, you bring in the right people, you have the right culture, they're on the right seat, they have the right tools. And as you surround yourself with these great people, that's now going to prepare you as a company to go chase these bigger jobs, which can now catapult and, you know, bring you into a different, you know, just demographic. How has that changed now, especially at this point in your career, now that you have the right people, you know, trajectory, you know, where you're going in years to come? So that, that, that was a long question, but uh, <laughs> I tend to do that. Sorry. Sometimes yeah, I get no. a long one. <laughs> so you just said what, just so I heard it right, you know, what? So essentially you're hiring, lessons. okay, yeah. you hired, okay. you hired someone from Kiwit, right? That you just mentioned. Yes, sir. So investing in the right person, putting them on the right seat. Right. How does that change your company now, especially on the jobs that you can pursue? It's life-changing. And there was a, this, again, I'm going to reference the gentleman uh, with the massive excavation company. There's a lot of guys in between that, but he's definitely the biggest. And he told me, I remember asking him a question. I remember the first 15 minutes I ever got with him and um, just asking questions. And he had flown in on his jet. He has a, a shop down in South Georgia and crazy stuff. And I told, and I asked him, I was like, Hey, we're doing these kinds of projects. And we had just crossed like 3 million. And I was like, just super excited about it. And and I said, how do you train so many people? Like, how do you keep training people as the company gets bigger? And he looked at me just cross-eyed and with his head cocked sideways. And he's like, you don't train people. He's like, you show them what kind of company culture you have. And you have to acquire people with built-in experience. Like, you're never going to get that big if you don't hire people that are much farther than you in certain areas. And like I said, Maybe they don't know how to market. Maybe they don't know how to have a book of business. Maybe they don't have a lot of people skills, but they're super melancholy and they're really good at estimating. And likewise, a finance person doesn't have to be good at estimating, but he needs to be good at you know, keeping track of the numbers. And same thing with the ops guy. They all have different skill sets. And so as you're getting larger, if you were to get a person, again, you have to pay for them. I mean, I interviewed nine people last week for this position, anywhere between asking salaries, including truck benefits and all that kind of thing between 80 and $130,000. And there's scales higher than that. And that's not even including the bonus structure we have. And so you got to start paying people a lot of money. And the thing that I think I didn't really appreciate, I knew, but I didn't appreciate for a long time is it is so much cheaper, especially when you get to a level where it really matters, uh, doing stuff in the six figures and even smaller than that on a big scale. But it is so much cheaper to have an extra $40,000 of salary in skill than to have someone cheap that has no idea what they're doing and leads to hundreds of thousands of dollars of mistakes. And so if it's a difference between an inexperienced guy that's $60,000 a year and a super ultra experienced person that's been there, done that for two decades, and he's $110,000 a year, I absolutely guarantee you, you will save a lot more money than $60,000 by hiring that person and not only that, it's going to take the load off your back. You can focus on other areas. You can, you know, uh, work with other people in the company and train other people in the company and go find those talent uh, areas as well. And so 
it, it, it's compounding excellence and it's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. And so learning that from him to where you can purchase decades of experience for a very reasonable price, um, it is the only way to get larger in any area. So it's funny you say that because, you know, anyone that's listening, you know, I talk about chase experience, not money. And for the individual, yeah, there's value to that, right? As you chase experience, right? You're going to at some point be able to cap, you know, to, to build on that. Now with hiring, it's interesting because same thing that for you, but on a different tone here is that you mentioned if you pay someone, let's say 40,000, that's a big number, someone between 100, 140 and you add in, you know, burden rates and everything else that goes with that. Mm. It's a big number. That's not a small number, but investing in experience now, it's going to cost you. So you're chasing that experience to bring it to the company. There's an investment, there's cost, you know, but by doing that, and you bring in the right people and they're going to implement systems, training, you know, they're going to bring ideas to the table. They're going to put you in a place where you as the owner, Reese, you can now focus on the business and the growth. And, and that's where, when you get the right people, that's where the synergy comes in. And that's where you really, you know, turn the corner for you though, especially, you know, I understand the process to get to this point, to hire people, get them on the right seat. It's taken some time. You mentioned the, the dark days years ago. Now, though, how how have you accelerated that growth, not just with hiring the right people, but I'm talking about networking, understand how your competitors are operating, you know, understand how to run your company. You mentioned you have a good friend that runs a massive excavation company. Do you have a network of people in your peer group that are helping you, you know, to just better each and every day? To be honest, I have some friends and I'm 22. I'm, and so I'm not very old, obviously. And so... I have some friends that um, do have businesses and, you know, they're three, four or 500,000 are your businesses, um, which is really, really good that are around my age. And, but none that are really a personal circle, I would say, you know, these people that I've developed, it, it started out as I'd call like the side of a truck and ask, I asked my pastor if he knew of anybody that owned a landscape business and then sat down with those guys and then, Um, That led to bigger and bigger and bigger companies. And then, uh, you know, honestly, those people were referring me to their friends. And so, hey, this kid will buy you dinner and ask you questions, but he's really cool. And so, you know, try and do that. And so I wouldn't say it's a consistent circle, but it is a situation where about once a quarter, I would say, or half a, you know, twice a year or once a year, uh, I'll ask these people if I can sit down and just go over my numbers and um, just go over my plans and, you know, what they think about it and get their perspectives. And it's been extraordinary to have that in my back pocket. And recently it's, it's been something to where I've started spending a lot of money on education and that's been incredible, but I'd say foundationally, I haven't had a circle necessarily, but it's been a kind of rack of people that I can go to for advice that have uh, been places that I haven't been before. So being that you're 22, super young, have you ever seen any opposition hiring good people? I mean, it sounds like you have some incredible people on your team. Has there been any resistance for them to come in and say, Reese, you're pretty young to work for? No. And I say that because if you under, if you, now, if you have a a giant inflated ego and which I've seen this before with, with, with some of my friends and Um, if that's the mindset, yes, there's lots of opposition, but if you do lay down and you tell them, Hey, look, 
you know, you're 40 years old and you have two decades of experience and you worked at this corporate company where you sold your soul 40 hours a week and you hated every minute of it. And, but you got a lot of experience and I'm young, I'm full of energy and I am really ignorant and, and I'm not, I can't say I'm naive anymore. That was a phase and it's, it burnt, I burned my way out of that. Um, and then healed through scabs and scars and things like that. <laughs> and so if you put that all on the table and you just let them know, I believe that I can do something incredible and I need your help. I need your experience and I need your trust and I need your you know, companionship. And if you give me that, I can do the best I very can, you know, over my own salary and over my own earnings to give you a consistent paycheck. And I think we can do something incredible together. And I think if you come at it with that kind of mindset, I think people will lay down to, to work with you. I mean, it's uh, the people that I interviewed uh, last week. I was very humbled, to be honest with you. There were people in their mid 40s that were willing to pack up their family of three kids in Florida to move across a state to come work for me. And I used to be begging people at the lunch table for $14 an hour to rake leaves and stuff. And so <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, going from that. And then now it's like trying to get someone of that caliber on your team. Um, it's, it's incredible. And so I think to, to sum that up, going at it from a humble perspective, humble beginnings and being honest with people and not trying to puff yourself up to something you're not, I think it, it can buy you a lot of points. And I, I really believe in that. It's interesting because the reality, as you're mentioning, it's not really an age thing. It's a humility thing. It's a, a drive thing. It's yeah. understanding direction. You know, if you have some of these things and you understand where you're going as a person, people are going to follow, right? It doesn't, sure. you know, you, you have enough life experience, even though you're young, just running a business. As you look at, you know, for you, you're, you're really relying on your equipment performance. Um, how, how does that come into play as you're thinking about renting equipment, purchasing equipment, you know, especially as you factor, and I'm sure we're not going to try to make you a CPA here and figure out depreciation, all these things <laughs> and the advantages, but, but yeah. there is some thought between maintenance. Do I rent? Do I own? How have you factored in just the equipment side? You know, there's a whole investment where we've been talking about people and culture, but now there's the equipment side for you to be successful. So, and again, I'm not a CPA, you know, none taken disclaimer, but there's been a mix. And so we own a lot of equipment. We rent a lot of equipment. We lease a lot of equipment. And so I think on these bigger jobs, like right now we've got three 45 or there's one 45,000 pound excavator. That is a sort of full-time sub that we've, you know, had in house for a while. And then there's two 60,000 pound machines that we've been renting. And so, and then we're about to put another one on rent and those are like seven to $8,000 a month, but you can give them back when the job's over. And so I, I think I've been a, I used to be, and this goes back to the ego thing where the first skid steer I ever purchased was a TL 10 V2 is like $70,000. And, uh, I wanted to buy it just as soon as I could. And then I bought an excavator and then I bought a truck and then I bought this and that and the other, and then your brother's equipment and your parents' equipment and your friend Bob. And then, and because I wanted to put a sticker on it and I wanted to say that is Reese's. And so, and, uh, and then polish it on the weekends and, and, you know, sleep with it on Fridays and it just, it's just, it's a huge ego trip in some ways. And so I think that there is absolutely a line that talk to your CPA about uh, buying equipment. However, in the vast majority of cases, especially if you are growing and scaling and, and trying to just, you know, go through the ranks as quick as possible, I think you should rent everything almost. I mean, not, maybe not trucks and things like that. We lease a lot of trucks. Um, but if you were to buy everything, you're just, 
voluntarily taking the risk of the world on your shoulders, especially if you don't have a good mechanic. Um, that's worse. And so at least you can give it back and swap it for a new one. If you get on a new job, you can swap it for a different size or a different you know, caliber machine or whatever. And so I think there's a lot to be said for it. And people think that it's like the renting versus buying a house thing. They think if they're giving away a $7,000 a month payment for a, a quarter million dollar machine that they're just throwing away money. But that's just such a one-sided, like polarized perspective because you might not be developing equity in a super depreciating asset, which doesn't make any sense either, but you can give it back. Like you're not, you're not taking into account the risk, right? Of having, when the job's over or the economy takes, takes a dump and you can't have any work anymore or the, you don't have a place to put the machine. Um, the risk is worth so much money in my opinion. So that, I think it's a, um, I think it's really, really important to take into account and you should really have a lot of money put away or absolutely know for sure that for years to come, you can put that equipment to use before buying something. Well, cash is king, right? And so understanding at least, yeah, the health of the company. I mean, you can be growth minded, but at the same time, you still have to stagger that growth, right? You have to understand cost. And as you mentioned, you know, we're in construction. It fluctuates. It's just the reality of it. What do the next five years look like for you? So in my earbuds just gave me a little, you know, your low on battery thing. So I I will uh, hurry this up a little bit. So I, and I want to put this on the table because I want to make sure everybody knows this, understands this, and is clear on this. So I have a company uh, called Adams and Alley, which is the, the company I'm using to purchase other companies. And so SCA was one of those companies, right? And so it, that SCA morphed and changed and grew and, and, and developed. Um, but now where we're at is like, we want to develop a portfolio of infrastructure-based companies. And so, and that's what these are. Um, I think taking the private equity approach is the best way I have described things um, and the best way that I can describe the future. It hasn't been until recently. It hasn't been until the last six months or so that that has taken a a trip. Um, But I think the world is is incredibly large. It's a blue ocean. And I think, and this is where it goes back to the situation where construction is an incredible place to be because everybody's running away from it and technology is just catching up. I plan on assembling a portfolio of these kinds of companies over the next five to 10 years. And I've got a handful of them identified. Um, and so, and some of these are the mentors that I've had in the past. Um, and so develop, and that's where you get the scale going from uh, 5 million. And then you purchase, just like you can purchase experience in an employee, you can purchase a company and then merge and roll up and, and go that route. And so I do believe making the jump from, you know, four and then to 10 and then to 20 and 40 and 50 and a hundred. Um, I've had these conversations with the people I sit down with and I, I understand the game plan. And so um, I'm, I'm very, I'm very excited to say that. I'm very excited to get back on a podcast in five years and tell you it's successful. And maybe it wasn't, maybe it is. I think I'll get somewhere in between, but um, I think it's going to be an extraordinary ride. And I believe that's the case. I believe I'm a God-fearing man, you know, in my heart, and um, I do believe it's possible. And so if I had to make a picture in five years, I would say we'll be sitting probably somewhere around uh, as a portfolio, maybe between 30 and 50 million is a pretty, I don't want to call it conservative, but um, there is capital that uh, is available and expertise that is also available and people that are looking to leave the industry and exit and uh, have very large companies that have, like Reese, a lot. And so... Um, not predicting anything, but we are on a good spot and a good track. So 
Um, well, that's amazing. That, that's super exciting. But it's amazing that focus. At least you understand, right? And I think everybody, even as a business, I mean, we ask employees that, where do you see seven, five years? was so kind of funny in interviews. But as a business owner, you got to understand what's the goal of my company? Where do I plan to be? And what, what, you know, what, what's valuable to me now and what will be valuable in five years? I don't know. And that may change. Yeah. What do you do for fun? You don't have, it seems like you don't have a lot of ton of time trying to grow this company and well, all your other actually, endeavors. So it's gotten better in the last uh, six months or so. And so I play golf, uh, some with our engineers and stuff like that and friends. And so I go to the gym and, um, and, and so there's a lot of areas that are, are lacked and, you know, even areas like dating per se, you know, it's a personal thing that I, I think is a not so personal thing to bring up. Um, I had a, one of a, one of those mentors told me one day, he runs a $31 million company, debt-free, took $6 million out of his business last year. And I was just so excited to show him my laptop and look at these numbers and we're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing this. And he's like, when's the last time you went on a date? And, <laughs> and I was like, well, uh, but we did $3 million, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. <laughs> And, um, and he just swirled his finger around and, you know, he said cock sideways, and had a mustache, you know, just looking real disappointed. He's like, don't make this your whole life. He said, if you do, it will crush you. And uh, as it crushed me when he was my age. And, um, and I think that was something that was very, very warranted to talk about. And um, I don't think, you know, that's not a cool entrepreneur thing to talk about. You know, it's nose to the grindstone, kill yourself every day until you're rich kind of thing. Um, but I do believe if you balance those kinds of buckets in life, um, it does pay dividends in every other area and, um, your focus can't, you can't do that forever. And so without filling some of those other areas of your life. And so, um, it's important. And I think if, um, you put some focus towards it, you'll understand that there's a lot more happiness that comes, uh, that's outside of finance and money and risk. So for sure. Yeah, I would agree. And the reality is, I mean, it's hard to find balance in general. I mean, I think most yeah. of us struggle with that, but essentially having other passions and things outside the business are good because, you know, we also need ways to unwind, right? And you mentioned you have golf and stuff. And so you do have other things that, that take you out of it here and there. For those listening, I mean, you've gave some amazing advice, Reese. Can't thank you enough for making time, especially with all that you have going on. You've been super busy. So uh, where can our listeners find you? So I have a YouTube channel, uh, very small right now, trying to make time for it, but it's uh, at Reese Alley one. Um, I'm also on Facebook and getting back on Instagram. And so those would be the best places, but I go to YouTube first. I'll be uploading some videos there and, um, I don't, I'm not going to have a course or a guru thing or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I pay for that stuff, but I'm not going to have that at all. And so I'm trying to make money by investing in these companies. Uh, that is how I have generated what I've got now and what I have in the future. And so everybody else, uh, that is small or trying to get that size, or maybe you can get to a million and then I can help you. Um, you can take all of it for free and uh, do what you please. Have a great life and uh, be prosperous. So that'll be where that stuff is. Well, Reese, you've been amazing. Can't thank you enough. Yes, sir. Thank you. If you give value from the show, please support us by giving a five-star rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. And I also have a favorite ask. We've had some incredible guests that come on and share their wisdom, their knowledge about their business. So if you have friends or family members that could benefit from those episodes, please share it with them, as well as any other business owners that you're networking with that could get value from the podcast or certain episodes, please share those as well. Again, subscribe, make sure you're following any questions that you have topics. We've had uh, listeners reach out about certain guests that we should have on the show. Again, brad.l at aftconstruction.com. Email me for topics to address guests that we should have on. And even if you think you'd be a great guest for the show. So again, thank you for all your support and we'll see you next time.